Hello, Crime Lab. I'm your host, Jessica Garcia. Welcome, welcome, welcome back for another episode of Crime Lab. I'm so excited to be here talking to you about true crime. I'm bringing you crime cases because these stories deserve to be known. They deserve to be talked about and they deserve not to be forgotten. I hope you're ready to hear about the case I have for you today. For today's case, I want to tell you about the Austin Yogurt Shop murders. Today, Austin is one of the largest cities in Central Texas with a population of more than 1 million. It's situated northeast of San Antonio and south of Dallas, and it's known for its buzzing social scene, promising job market, and distinct culture, all of which attract people from across the country and from all over the world. It was a different story in the early 1990s, though. Back then, Austin was considered a quiet and peaceful place, one of whose residents didn't have to worry about the violent crimes that plagued other large cities in the United States. However, this all changed when on the evening of December 6, 1991, firefighters arrived at a burning frozen yogurt shop and encountered a horrific scene. In today's episode of Crime Lab, the story of four teenage girls whose plans for a slumber party never materialized. For many, their murders marked a turning point for Austin, a city that remains haunted by the yogurt shop murders. To say that 17-year-old Jennifer Ann Harberson was popular would be an understatement. In addition to serving as the president of her school's chapter of Future Farmers of America, she was also student speaker of the house and ran for the track team, participating in both the 400 and 1600 meter relays. Her younger sister, 15-year-old Sarah, enjoyed the same levels of popularity too. Despite being a freshman, she had already made a name for herself on the volleyball and basketball courts, as well as in the school's junior varsity cheerleading squad. She juggled these along with her stellar academic scores and position as student council representative. The two girls were close to each other, with Jennifer often driving her sister around in the Chevy that their father had bought. To help pay for it, she began working part-time, first at a grocery store and then at a frozen yogurt shop called I Can't Believe It's Yogurt which was located at the nearby Hillside Center Mall. There, Jennifer worked with her best friend, 17-year-old Eliza Thomas, who she had met through Future Farmers of America. The two girls were so involved in the organization that they were even nominated as its queen during their senior year of high school, which excited them both. Thanks to Future Farmers of America, the three girls were able to add another friend to their group. 13-year-old Amy Aries. Despite being incredibly young and still in middle school, she was known in the organization for her leadership skills. 
which earned her the coveted position of incoming vice president. Unfortunately, their busy schedules and the fact that Amy attended another school meant that the four girls weren't able to hang out as much as they wanted to. To remedy this, they planned a slumber party for the first week of December in the hopes that it would allow them to catch up on each other's lives. It was the evening of December 6, 1991, and Sarah was walking to the frozen yogurt shop accompanied by Amy. The two older girls were in charge of closing the store at 11 p.m., so it was decided that they would all meet there before heading to the Harbisons for the sleepover. To make sure that Jennifer and Eliza would finish on time, Sarah and Amy began to help out, allegedly going to the back where the kitchen was located to help clean up. They were all so excited for the slumber party later that evening and wanted to make sure that the store was cleaned up and ready to close on time. Unfortunately, none of them would ever make it back to the Harbisons. Just before midnight, a local police officer named Troy Gay was out patrolling Northwest Austin when he noticed smoke rising out of the Hillside Center Mall. He called it in at exactly 11.47 p.m. and fire crews soon arrived at the scene of the burning I Can't Believe It yogurt shop. The incident was designated as a two-alarm fire, which meant that it wasn't intense and wouldn't spiral out of control. The blaze wasn't hard to contain, but as the last of the flames were sputtered out, the firefighters were greeted by a horrific sight. Inside the burnt shell of the yogurt shop, in its back room more specifically, lay the bodies of four teenage girls. All of them were naked with their clothing have been used to bind and gag them. Two of the bodies were stacked on top of each other while another lay close by. Meanwhile, the fourth body was found a few steps away lying near the sink in the bathroom. At the time, Austin Police Sergeant John Jones Jr. was being filmed by the local news network for a program on homicide detectives in Texas. Because of this, his reaction to the report that several dead bodies had been found inside the frozen yogurt shop was captured on tape. Investigators quickly established that the four bodies belonged to teenage girls, all of whom had been shot in the head, execution style. The crime sent shockwaves throughout Austin, especially when it was reported that the bodies belonged to four young girls. As publicity surrounding the case mounted, so did the pressure on the authorities. Unfortunately, the evidence that could have been gathered from the yogurt shop had been washed away by the large amount of waters needed to extinguish the fire. The store had been set ablaze in an attempt to cover up their brutal deaths. However, this ultimately failed and authorities were able to identify the victims as the Harbison sisters, Jennifer and Sarah, along with their friends Eliza and Amy. According to Dick Ellis, a former reporter who covered the story, quote, After they were shot, the gunmen or gunmen gathered paper plates, cups, and cardboard from the shop, doused the materials and the girls in lighter fluid, and set it all on fire. The flames were so intense, they melted the top of a heavy aluminum ladder to the back of the store, end quote. 
It was also found that the fire was so intense that it had started to burn away one of the victim's teeth. Another body had started to melt to the floor of the yogurt shop. Firefighters arrived just in time to staunch the flames. Later, it was theorized that styrofoam cups had been used to help light the fire. As an incredibly flammable material, one that was capable of creating a napalm-like substance when set ablaze, it would have certainly explained the intense heat that the fire emitted. Unfortunately, the excessive amount of water used to extinguish the blaze washed away crucial pieces of evidence, which could have led to the killer. This proved to be a huge disadvantage and many continue to claim that the unsolved status of the Austin yogurt shop murders could be attributed to this. The following day on December 7th, local arson investigator Melvin Stahl issued his official report where he stated that the fire had been started at around 11.42 p.m. or more than 40 minutes after Jennifer and Eliza were supposed to have closed the store. His findings implied that the killer, or killers, had remained inside the shop for at least an hour before igniting it. It was also found that whoever murdered the girls had gone to great lengths to contaminate the crime scene. For instance, a large stack of paper cups and bowls had been placed on their bodies, which served as an accelerant for the fire. More than that, though, chocolate syrup as well as other yogurt ingredients had been spilled all over and around the bodies, which mixed with the blood. The authorities regarded these horrific acts as a sick joke that the culprit had played. However, it derailed their investigation since the contaminated crime scene exasperated the complex circumstances of the crime. Despite these disadvantages, the authorities were able to speculate that the crime had begun as a mere robbery, with the culprit scoping the four girls out as they were closing the store. To quote the website Unresolved, investigators came to this conclusion due to the cleaning supplies that had been seemingly abandoned in the middle of the store's closing procedures. One of the rags that one of the teens had been using to wipe down the tables had been seemingly dropped and forgotten about. And the same thing happened to one of the frozen yogurt dispensers, which were changed every night during closing, end quote. This idea was corroborated by the fact that approximately $540 was missing from the cash register, which was determined by the owners of the yogurt shop. Meanwhile, the public believed that the gruesome killings had been committed by at least two perpetrators, since evidence recovered from the crime scene indicated that more than one firearm was used to execute the girls. In addition to these stories, investigators were able to establish that the killers had not forced their way inside the yogurt shop, which meant that they had been inside, perhaps as customers during its closing time. Unfortunately, the police's leads and speculations stopped there. As weeks passed without any new developments, the residents of Austin began to do all that they could to help the authorities. Thousands handed out flyers in various neighborhoods and shopping malls, while trees were tied with white ribbons in memory of the four victims who had been brutally killed in the prime of their youth. Bryce Foods, the company that owned the yogurt shop, 
even offered a $25,000 reward to anyone that came forward with information leading to an arrest and eventual conviction. But these efforts amounted to nothing. With their leads turning cold, the authorities began to look in the backstories of the four girls, under the theory that perhaps a jealous ex-boyfriend came forward looking for revenge. However, they were all squeaky clean, which indicated that they hadn't been targeted and that their murders were completely random. They also began interviewing witnesses, many of whom had visited the yoga shop on the day of the crime. Again, this led to neither arrests nor new leads. While the investigation was going nowhere, a report released by the Tarrant County Medical Examiner's Office shed more light on the events that took place on the night of December 6, 1991. It was found that the bodies of Jennifer, Sarah, and Eliza had been burnt beyond recognition, with their identities only proven through dental records. On the other hand, Amy Ayers, who had laid several feet away from the others, was determined to have been alive when the firefighters arrived at the yogurt shop, although she passed away shortly after. Because of her position, it was speculated that she had been trying to escape through the back door with her efforts disturbing Jennifer's body from where she originally laid. Unfortunately, her injuries had been too much for her to bear, and she perished a few steps away from freedom. Amy had also been shot with a different weapon, which cemented the idea that at least two different individuals had carried out the crime. It was heavily theorized that at least one of the victims had been sexually assaulted before their murders with many claiming that it had been 13-year-old Amy Ayers. However, the original police report allegedly indicated no such thing. Despite the mountains of theories that had been put forward, the investigation was severely hampered by the fact that forensic evidence was washed away by the firefighters, as well as by the city's lack of resources dedicated to solving the homicides. These disadvantages all proved to be too much, even with efforts made by police Sergeant John Jones and his partner Mike Huckabay. Unfortunately for them, and for the city of Austin, the investigation into the gruesome killings of Jennifer Harbison, Sarah Harbison, Eliza Thomas, and Amy Ayers went cold. In 1997, eight years after the murders, the authorities announced that four suspects had been taken into custody for their suspected involvement in the crime. Their names were Forrest Welburn, Michael Scott, Robert Springston, and Maurice Pierce, all of whom were in their early 20s. They had also been the case's primary suspects back in 1991 when the police received an anonymous tip urging them to look into then 16-year-old Pierce. According to the caller, he had gone into the yogurt shop on the evening of December 6 with a 22 caliber handgun, which was the same caliber as one of the firearms used to execute the four girls. Nothing came of the lead, though. Ballistics showed that Pierce's gun didn't match the murder weapon, and neither his fingerprints nor his hair matched those collected from the scene. Because of these, the authorities wrote him off as a suspect only to arrest him eight years later. In September 1999, Springsteen and Scott both confessed to the crime, with Springsteen in particular claiming that he had raped one of the victims. 
With this confession, the police theorized that the four boys, who were teenagers at the time of the murders, had initially intended to rob the yogurt store. However, things went south and they were forced to kill all four girls. To hide their crime, they set fire to the bodies along with the entire shop. While charges against Wellburn and Pierce were dropped, their alleged co-perpetrators weren't so lucky. Both Springsteen and Scott were convicted of capital murder, with the former receiving the death penalty, while the latter was sentenced to 99 years in prison. But even with these convictions, not everyone was convinced that Springsteen and Scott were guilty. For many, the lack of physical evidence tying them to the crime scene was concerning. This was exasperated by the allegations that both had been coerced into confessing to the murder. In 2008, DNA testing conducted on evidence collected from the yogurt shop also established that the genetic material found on the crime scene did not match either Springsteen or Scott. Neither were they a match for Pierce and Wellborn. Because of all these doubts, the Texas Court of Appeals overturned both convictions in 2009, ruling that the confessions made by Springsteen and Scott had been improperly used in the trials. The authorities, however, remain convinced that all four men were guilty of the Austin Yogurt Shop murders. The unsolved slayings of four teenage girls continued to haunt the city of Austin three decades after it happened. For many, the evening of December 6, 1991 marked a turning point for the city, one that led it to losing its innocence forever. On that day, the innocence and safety that Austin enjoyed was lost, along with the young lives of Jennifer Harbison, Sarah Harbison, Eliza Thomas, and Amy Ayers. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Crime Lab. New episodes are released on the first and third Friday of each month. If you want to see pictures from today's case, please follow my Instagram page at crime.lab.podcast. If you have any case suggestions, please let me know there in the comments. Until next time, hang in there and be safe.